We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we are asking built environment professionals, how can new green technology be incorporated into our buildings? Our guests in this episode are architects Shanine Fanton and Belinda Orwood, directors of People Oriented Design based in Cairns in northern Queensland. In this interview, Shanine and Belinda share how green technology works in the tropical climate of Queensland, the importance of material selections with regards to durability, and how computer modelling and understanding shade and prevailing winds is vitally important in the warmer climate that is omnipresent in the northern parts of Australia. I'll now hand over to Callum Senyov, an Imagine representative based in Queensland. Let's jump in. I wish to open this podcast by acknowledging the traditional owners of land across Australia and their continuing relationship to land, water and culture and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'm calling from Turrbal and Yuggera land here in Brisbane and we have on the line Shanine Fantine and Belinda Allwood, co-directors of People Oriented Design in Cairns who are award-winning architects and landscape architects, well regarded for their attention to people, place and appropriate design working in a vast area of Northern Australia and the Pacific. Welcome, Shanine and Belinda. Where are you calling from today? Hi, Callum. This is Shanine. We're calling from Cairns. We're on Gimoy, Wallaburra, Yidinji country in far north Queensland. And yes, it's a bit of an overcast day up here, but not too bad for winter. Winter's still a lovely time in Queensland. Before we jump into the theme of today or the giant, or the giant question about green tech, perhaps you'd like to start by introducing yourselves and a bit more about your background and what the ethos of people-oriented design is. Yeah, I'll go first if you like. Hi, Callum. Belinda Allwood. I'm an architect and landscape architect and co-director of POD, a practice based in Cairns, far north Queensland, that's been going since uh, officially since 2014. So quite a long time and have had a lot of fun in the process. I'll hand over to Shanine now. Hi, so we're a multidisciplinary practice. We do architecture, landscape architecture, project management, research, community engagement. And we do that because that makes us the most sustainable business and also stops us from being bored because we like to do lots of different things. It's great. So we have a few values to pod that have been there since the beginning. There's four values to our business and they are Maintaining a fresh perspective, valuing people and relationships, getting it right. So that's kind of macro and micro thinking all the way through a project and sustainability every day and sustainability in everything that we do. So they're the kind of key values that are part of POD. We're a practice of a team of seven people, including three architects and two graduates of architecture and one person who will also be registered very soon who used to be registered as an architect. It's a growing practice and we do a great diversity of work which is really interesting. Mm. It's good to hear we'll have a lot to talk about when it comes to homes a bit later. We talked a bit about you know winter and it's a bit on overcast day up there in Cairns but before we start talking about tech and sustainability in homes, I guess the key one is also, as always, what the, the climate is like 
where you're designing in. So what zone do you work in and what is the year-round kind of weather and climate like in the areas you design for? We're in climate zone one in the Building Code of Australia. We're in the wet tropics of far north Queensland. There's quite a few areas that do fall within the tropics. So it's important for us from a design sense to differentiate that we're the wet tropics because it's got its own unique set of conditions that we need to uh, design for and grapple with. Cairns, I've often used the analogy in the past when we're uh, talking about detailing or material selection, Cairns is a giant compost heap. If you select the wrong materials, it'll just break down with time. The other important thing from our perspective is realising how unique our place is up here in Cairns. And when you see it in a satellite image, you can see that we occupy a really thin strip of very lush, fertile coast that's bordered by the rainforested peaks of the Great Dividing Range on one side and then the Coral Sea and Great Barrier Reef on the other. And it really is a very thin strip when you're looking at it from on a satellite image. If you travel 30 minutes west by car, the rainfall reduces and the landscape becomes incredibly arid, turns into very arid savanna woodland. So what we've got here is, is quite contained and we feel it's very precious. Interesting, we describe where we our office is but we actually work also in climate zones from the Torres Strait all the way across to the Northern Territory and at the moment down to Brisbane. So although our office is based in Cairns in the wet tropics, we are working in a variety of climates across Queensland and that's also, you know, has its challenges and is really interesting for us because every place that you work is slightly different and the microclimate is different. In that entire range, let's let's focus for the moment on Cairns for some of these questions and then whichever projects we may talk about later, I think it's very interesting and we could go forever about talking about the different ways of designing for every climate zone. But specifically Cairns and your lived experiences, what, how do people live? How do you occupy your homes and the public realm inside that wet, lush compost heap? I find when we ask people, uh, we have a lot of people who come to Cairns from other places, from other states, uh, and when we ask them why they choose to move here to live, it's often it often comes down to the fact that it's a, a very relaxed outdoor lifestyle. It's got a very beautiful natural environment. So it's the, the natural, natural conditions up here that really do draw people, the reef, the rainforest, the things that you can do, uh, hiking, boating, cycling, swimming in rainforest creeks, waterholes, outdoor dining, outdoor markets, outdoor performances. Uh, we've got places set up for very large-scale outdoor performances here. So it's a very large focus on an outdoor lifestyle and it's a very relaxed lifestyle up here that, that people really respond to and like and, and uh, come here for. So when we're talking about design, we acknowledge there's frequently a need to have an air-conditioned space and quite often people coming from other places want air-conditioned spaces to retreat to in the heat of the summer days. But for us, it really makes a lot of sense to design smartly so we can reduce our reliance on those things, the mechanical cooling, so that we can let people connect with and enjoy the outdoor environment comfortably as much as they can, for as long as they can. It's really interesting because there is this great aspiration and love of the outdoors and the external environment in far north Queensland, but it's also countered, Callum, with a great fear a great fear of cyclones and mould and insects and torrential rain. And so you'll find people who are 
newish to far north Queensland who are uncertain about it as a place, it can really instill a whole lot of um, uncertainty in people. And so they tend to respond to that by trying to, you know, there's a lot of um, the suburbs around Cairns are full of bunkers, really, that are air-conditioned eskies, you know, and little more than that as a result. So it is a bit of um, a, a place of dichotomy. People will live in their air-conditioned eskies and then they'll all go out to an outdoor concert, you know, in a park, and then they'll go back home into their air-conditioned eskies, you know. It's one of the things that we um, are battling against all the time in terms of housing design and provision. Yeah, it's a really interesting place and way of living and I guess the the old architecture of before air conditioning and then the bunkers of today, especially in the suburbs. And I'm really keen to hear how you deal with that dichotomy through your work. I think that leads us nicely, this talk of air conditioning and this talk of keeping out mould leads us nicely into the question of today's podcast, which is how can new green technology be incorporated into the home? And how do you, how do you think along those lines? I guess, how do you define what is green technology? So when I think about that, I always like to think on a range of scales and I'm always a bit wary about using the term green with abandon too, unless we can see people have an understanding of sustainability in a holistic sense as well. And look, when you're talking about green technology, for me, it's vitally important applied externally to um, the actual house. So in the the chains of supply leading up to the house. So in research and development uh, of materials to reduce their carbon footprint to increase recycled material content. Technology plays a really vital role at that end of the construction equation. When it comes to applied technology in the house, I'm more of a, a watch and learn and test kind of person, I guess. And I'd like to kind of keep one eye on the, the overall holistic aim of sustainability, which is to reduce our impact uh, in terms of resource use and energy use. So if we're talking about technology that can be applied in the house, if it's things like solar or you know renewable energy s- sources that has a direct purpose to do that, fantastic. I think we all need it. But I think going in with, I guess, a careful watch on things that might be uh, more fads or, or gizmos that might become redundant with time or might be an added layer that uh, may not necessarily be needed to um, provide good sustainability in a holistic sense. Yeah, I agree completely. So it might be our generation, Callum, but I don't really think in terms of green tech. You know, we think in terms of sustainability from a place and country-based perspective, but also from a um, material passive house design, low energy consumption perspective. So we've got to start with the basic set of principles that are correct. If you were to build, you know, a large air-conditioned house that was well-sealed per se, which had a lot of green tech that then organised itself that it um, accommodated changes in temperature and people lighting levels and house usage, is that actually better than something that's been passively designed for the tropics that works well, that avoids all that extra energy consumption in the first place and gets people to interact with the external environment and also gets them to understand how to run their house like you might drive a car. And I know we're heading towards driverless cars, but the issue is is that the more disconnected people are with their stuff, 
whether that's a car or a house or, you know, their vegetables or a handbag, it doesn't matter. Though I think people have less awareness of the whole environmental impact of that thing holistically in terms of where it's come from and how it's made and, you know, its relationship with sustainability. So we would, you know, we're advocates of people knowing where their houses come from and how they're built and how you run them so that they work best for what you need. Was that a bit too esoteric, Belinda? Was that my kind of analogy? No, I think so. And I think uh, you just made me think of something else that's really important um, when considering tech or, or level of tech. Apart from, I mentioned redundancy before, but the other things we, we need, really need to consider in design, people of all abilities, people who are going to be using the house though, in a family, you know, different generations, different levels of ability, future occupants of the house as well. So we need to build in redundancy in the way things operate I guess it's just to us it's that it's kind of common sense I suppose I think we, when we started you started Belinda by saying you know trying to ignore the buzzwords of you know green when you say green green tech what does that mean there's a bit of buzzword but a lot of what you've described now is the new buzzword of you know embodied energy of or you know uh, life cycle assessment of buildings because by talking about the supply chains just to get materials into your house and then not wanting to replace things just because they become redundant it's as you say a common sense way to approach something that's now become almost its own industry and there's all there's consultants to help making sure you have this low a reduced impact on the world is that something that when as you've mentioned before like when a lot of people come up from especially southern states or they're used to living in their bunkers and then they come to you for a new home are these I guess, common sense, as you say, approaches or discussions, are they something that you have to educate clients on? Do they come to you because you already do that? Do you have to ever fight, I guess, to make sure there's fads and gizmos aren't chucked on willy-nilly at a later stage? Really not, no. And and Janine will probably talk more to this, but um, what you touched on there, people who come to us for house design tend to choose to come to us because we've clearly got a um, particular philosophy around sustainability in house design. So they're on the same page. We, d- we don't have to do too much fighting. <laughs> don't, we don't have to fight. <laughs> we We've learned to avoid clients who want to fight with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Well, yeah, well, I guess, um, no, Belinda's quite right. Most people who approach us are keen on one of the early philosophies that we um presented as part of pod which is the least house necessary and so the so what is the least house necessary it's um it's an idea and it was then kind of trademarked as a little educational workshop and it's about understanding what you need to live comfortably in the tropics which really I learnt in multiple ways. I learnt it, one, from being a graduate at Tropical Architects in Darwin and, two, working with First Nations people all over the top end in Queensland for a long time. And it was really the climate, when it's good, is wonderful in the northern part of Australia and air leakage is not a problem if you're not air conditioning. In fact, the more air leakage across your body is the better in terms of natural breeze. So the least house necessary is questioning how much fully enclosed area you actually need to live comfortably in terms of controlling the environment around you, but also from a privacy and security perspective. And the 
setting up of that set of principles and educational workshop, which we've run more than 10 times in the last few years, it's really kind of house design 101 for the tropics. And in that process, we take people through orientation and prevailing breezes and the existing climate up here and then, you know, ideas about not how many bedrooms do you need, but behaviours. Where do you like to sleep? How do you like to sleep? Where do you like to eat? How do you like to eat? Where do you like to bathe? How would you like to bathe? What can be under a tree? What needs to be fully enclosed? So those kinds of things, people are interested in the process of going back to first principles and thinking about how they want to live. And that the least house necessary also applies to the ideas of having just enough and not too much, about not consuming. It's about making things that are, yes, you know, consume less energy, that take less effort to maintain, that cost less to clean. And so the whole of the principle is that you make a house that's comfortable, that works for the tropics, that's big enough for what you need, that's flexible enough for your current and future needs, but that isn't going to cause you massive amounts of stress from an energy perspective, a maintenance perspective, you know, a cost perspective. So that's where it began. We've managed to build a number of these little, they're not always super small, Let's say the smaller ones have had a fully enclosed area of under 100 square metres, just under, but then the external covered areas have been almost equally in size because people are choosing to live outside. We've managed to build a number of these now in far north Queensland. And through that philosophy, I guess, in that and each one is different, of course, because we're working closely with clients on that method, people get excited, they see an alternate slightly alternative typology and it's interesting because to us it's probably not really an alternative typology it's one that we've seen in many other places done well but it's just that Cairns doesn't have that many examples of it. It's It's been for us a way of changing the narrative for people and, and educating people but it's it's not just about tropical design or design in Cairns in fact once we... Um, oh, we did in Canberra. We did we did so we, we needed to draw on local knowledge of climate zone building for climate or design for climate zones down there but Bigger picture-wise, for us, it's really important because we're interested on addressing sustainability at a range of scales. And when we're talking about the least house necessary, it's a response to seeing a trend in Australia of an increase in floor area of houses. And if you look at um, the Bureau of Statistics, uh, 2020, the average floor area of Australian houses was 248 metres squared. That's huge. And in America, same year, um, it was 210. So we're officially biggest in the world. And really, is, is there a need for that? Do people know that? How do people feel about that? And if you pair that with um, a similar conversation about suburb design or lot sizes, there's been a decrease in lot sizes in the same period of time from 602 square metres to 460 square metres and yet when you pair that with an increase in floor area of houses, it just doesn't add up. And if you consider that in the, um, the context of, you know, the building discussion about affordable housing, it doesn't make any sense at all. So, yeah, for, for us, teaching people about something like the least house necessary is a really important thing. 
And what Belinda just described, as we know, creates all these heat island suburbs that we have in Australia at the moment that are really becoming unlivable all over, you know, Queensland and New South Wales. Everywhere, really, yeah. And for me, I'm a landscape architect too. For me, it's um, it's a crisis. And, you know, in some ways I look at these these areas and I think they're, they're the ghettos of the future. They really are in terms of amenity and the quality of construction and what they're doing to the environment. You know, to me, that's a far more urgent thing to be addressing or speaking to than what technology we have in houses, I think. Yeah, you mentioned your your work as a landscape architect. Does that does that incorporate very well with the lease house necessary being outside? And does that manage to take away by incorporating more landscape? Does that take away more house? I guess. Yeah, I think that's a, one way of looking at it. It's always a balancing act, isn't it? I mean, if we can reduce floor area and we can re- reduce that by um, you know having people really assess what their needs are to be comfortable, but also reducing footprint by uh, doing other things like going up instead of out. So, yes, looking at the balance of what we're doing with a a site and, you know, I'd I'd say to people, if you're looking for a a lot or a site to build a house, think about several things. A, is there room to plant a tree or some trees so that you can be providing some natural shade an amenity so you can be creating some habitat and, you know, contributing or restoring local ecologies. For, for me, I think when, when we're talking about sustainability, I, I'm very loath to, to just kind of put the blinkers on and talk about something, one thing like um, green tech. I think green tech's important so long as we don't let it fall into the, the column of green wash and we're considering sustainability at a, a a far bigger kind of uh, context. I just thought of something. I mean, if, I think the greatest green tech we have available to us is actually trees, okay? So Belinda's comment to me just prompted me thinking about those small houses that we had completed. All of them use their natural garden settings that have been created to create another level of climatic control for the house, particularly the big small house, which is in Palm Cove. It was designed so that it had enough, its footprint is only 30% of the site, 30 to 40%. So the remainder is left to garden. And the idea is that the garden would help to act as a climatic filter. So, you know, trees and landscape design and re-establishing endemic ecologies is the greatest green tech we've got that's underutilised, I think, in architecture. You know, it can be the thing that begins to offset the 40% of waste that we end up putting into the environment through what we build and create. That's a really interesting point, and just the the 40% of waste we're putting, as you said, putting into houses during the construction process, and that really brings us back to something Belinda you said at the start, that one of the more important bits of green tech in your eyes is the tech within the supply chains um, and how you get materials, how you manufacture materials and you get materials to site. Is that something you have much control over and have much research time in? Or is it a matter of, you know, you've you've got some products that that work that you use regularly? Well, it's something we've got to consider very um, carefully in our climate region. As I mentioned before, Ken's the, the giant compost heap We've got to be very careful with material selection for for durability. One of the other things that ties into that 
response is because we're regional, materials have got to come a long way frequently to get here. There's a lot of transport cost and there's implications for that in you know, carbon footprint and net zero. When, you, when you're in a place like we are here currently, it's far more challenging to, to achieve net zero because of those things, transport costs, distances. We also do have a... Um, hey, we do have a selection of um, a range of materials that we have researched, you know, that always gets updated on a regular basis that we know are okay. You know, they may not be perfect, but they're better than alternative selections. But the transport cost is massive in regional Australia and it gets worse when you go to remote areas. And so the, the idea of creating net zero housing outcomes in remote areas is really difficult unless you're going to offset a whole of that green energy you know, consumption in some kind of way. Because very little is built on site, you know, or from local materials, and so everything is brought in either by truck or barge. It's even harder in those areas. That point about the the transport costs being high is really comes, I guess, back to the least house necessary and the the minimisation of the you know one less piece of resource transported is better than a slightly better performing resource transported all that way or a great piece of tech, as you said, Belinda, really, that gets redundant, that works great for five years and gets redundant is a lot of transport costs to take it off and put a new piece of tech or a new material when that one breaks down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's one thing we've learned over the years is, is to keep things really simple, but both for that efficiencies and economies, but also for um, reliability, redundancy, resilience. So, yeah, we do have tried and true um, kind of details and materials we'll go to, but um, also still keeping a, um, a weather eye on what's developing too, how we can improve things. Yeah, and I must say the younger people in our office who are usually often the ones doing that research, which we really appreciate, or something will come across someone's um, desk or into their um you know, into their field of vision and will say, well, can someone please spend two hours digging around in that product and have a good look at it? And the first question is, it looks great. Can we use it in cyclonic areas? You know, will it pass the um, weather, weather pressure ingress test for the kilonewtons per hour of, you know, rain coming in? And sometimes it's yes and most times it's no. And so then we have to abandon that product, you know. So that comes up a lot for us is can we actually use it up here even though it looks great? So... I mean, there are lots of products emerging. There's also the question of what you what you can reasonably recycle, you know, and access through recycling. So there's, you know, if there's commitment and time by the client and their own labour, then, you know, there's a lot of good hardwood that can be found recycled up here. There's, you know, from older houses, there are materials available, but then we're also limited to how you can use those materials because of the cyclonic, you know, building code requirements. So things you could do in the past, such as using older windows and doors, you can't do anymore because you can't get any kind of glazing certificate for them. So there's a real balance between also, you know, using recycled materials and using new materials and being able to get things passed by the building certifier. Yeah, so that, that's a constant uh, dance and we've got to uh, you know, watch very carefully. But what we, we can have far more control over uh, is 
teaching people about the benefits of small houses and how much sense they make. You know, because the less enclosed internal space you build, the more yard, more garden you have, the less cleaning and maintenance you've got and the more connection you've got with the outdoors and the less reliant you are on aircon. So that's something that we can we can talk to people about and encourage people to do, which has got immense benefits from a sustainability perspective on kind of a, a number of faces from, uh, you know, energy use, material use, um, right through to uh, habitat restoration. And it's amazing, Callum, how most people don't understand the principles of orientation for the tropics, orientation for, you know, sun and shade for catching that breezes and natural ventilation, but also using the natural topography. So, you know, if you've got house blocks with big mountains to the west, that's kind of handy. But if they also face north, there's a lot of new urban developments where the lot orientation is terrible, you know. So we often, when people come to us, say, can you send us the lot number first and we'll tell you whether you should even bother buying it. So that happens from time to time, doesn't it, Belinda? You give advice on bits of land, really, you know, and overland flow with torrential downpours and what's going to flood and what isn't, you know, and what's going to have stormwater problems. So really you often end up in a position where you're giving people advice on land purchase, you know, or land analysis feasibility for a house to get the best outcome, not just the house itself. So when you start, you've got the block, you've got the site, and you're doing all the first principles work of siting it appropriately and discovering how much house is necessary. When do you start adding, Blinder, I think you talked about, you know, the applied technologies and things like even old tech like rainwater capture, but PVs or smarter air conditionings, maybe they get better or ventilation and to fight mould. When does that start getting applied or when do you start thinking of that? Is it right early, like, you know, as part of, you you know, you're going to have one room being air conditioned or three rooms being air conditioned or... Yes, right at, right at the beginning, right um, when, when the design brief is being developed and, and tested with the client, absolutely testing what their interests are in, in renewables. So PVs, uh, by default, we'll, we'll put ceiling fans in um, all habitable spaces and on decks as well. And in fact, we, as far as energy assessment goes, we get um, kind of extra bonus points if we put um, uh, ceiling fans on outdoor deck spaces, which is quite a delightful thing so yeah up front we'll talk about the the applied technology side of it up front but we'll also when it comes to air conditioning and I think it's so rare that we find anybody that says they they're okay with not having any air conditioning it seems that most people still want some up here but we'll have the conversation about right we can give you the air conditioning or design for it but what we're also going to do is design your house so you're far less reliant on it so instead of having your aircon on for six months of the year, you might need it for two or three weeks of the year instead. And, you know, they, they can clearly see the benefit of that is um, energy savings. So it's there if they need it, but uh, if they understand that they're, they're probably actually not going to need it that much, it's uh, it's win-win. You know, it, it's embedded that we talk about rainwater tanks and um, use for toilet flushing and things like that, as well as solar. It's whether the clients then are willing to think consider off-grid which I know is going to become more and more given the energy crisis that we're seeing at the moment you know and whether the local shire council you're working with has some kind of grey water recycling policy and whether they'll let you do it or not because it varies up here from council to council and you have to work out whether the local you know plumbing inspectors whether they're basically going to accept it or not so there are some things in terms of green tech that vary 
from jurisdiction to jurisdiction in the tropics. I guess the other things that we are acutely aware of is the use of plantation, you know, timber framing, use of Australian hardwood timbers rather than steel if we can, particularly in coastal environments because of corrosion. And, you know, obviously all of the, you know, there are a plethora of products out there in terms of hind products and other kind of joists and weather techs, recycled compressed timber cladding products and alternatives to bench tops that are not got silicon in them. It's just about trying to keep up, I think, at the moment. So, mm, And make, make ethical choices um, across a whole range of things, yeah. We have actually a sub- person who's a supply presenter to us that we meet with once a month that just tells us about products in Queensland itself that are Queensland manufactured and designed. So there are a few different ways that we research local products to try and make sure that our supply chains are not too far away. I think the other thing, though, too, just to bring it back to the the tech question, um, is we're really focused on trying to keep it real and not just having tech in a house for tech's sake. Because of where we are and because we have cyclones, because the power goes out, you know, we're tested by extremes, we need to ensure that if the, the solar or the power or the building management system fails, that we're still going to be able to be comfortable in the house, you know, we can open windows up, get a breeze. We've got sufficient natural light. Yeah, keeping keeping it real, I think. Yeah, and look, some clients, we haven't quite had a client yet who's had things like um, solar with batteries with an EV plug-in location. But, you know, I'm heading in that direction myself and we might do it before we get a client who asks for it. But we know how to do that stuff. And we've worked with enough solar installers and providers to be able to head in that direction if we get a client who's got a Tesla that they want to plug in or some other, or a Leaf. Because you did mention earlier that, you know, some clients, you can possibly have the discussion about going off grid. Do you think that's where, somewhere you think the green tech coming in will be more useful in combating the possibilities of power outages or during a cyclone making each home you know, standalone? Is that, is that where you think the, the green tech is going and, and is that a good thing or is that not something that's too important? You Here, think? Do you mind if I, here's my opinion on that. I think the number of clients up until this year who've said to us, we're not going to go grid connected because the rebate in Queensland is low and it's not worth it, right? I think given the hike that we're going to see in energy prices now and in the next two years, I think that interest in commitment to solar plus battery is going to massively increase and as a result the cost of batteries will come down and so we will get this chain a reaction happening in the next five years of there being more people going off grid and it will be for their own energy security as well for that reason because yes if there is a cyclone if your solar isn't taken out if everyone else is down you're fine you know if you've got batteries i've seen it in members of my family are off grid and you know, we're all getting the generator out and they've been okay, you know. Up in the tropics where I guess you can have half the home being internal and the other half outside because of that lovely external ability to live outside for 51 weeks of the year or even the 52. Do you think that if you were to be working south, we have a lot of, you know, listeners currently rugged up in their Ugg boots down in, you know, in winter in Victoria and Tasmania and Sydney where you can't go outside for a lot longer. Do you think that your houses, like the least house necessary would be a lot larger or there'd be a lot more, 
you'd be looking at green tech a lot more if you were practicing in a different area? I don't think so. I think the, the passive design response certainly is, is different for different climate regions. But I guess I'm still grappling with trying to understand what you mean green tech, Callum. So to me, if we're talking about renewable power, as Shanine just spoke about, that, that is green tech and it's, it's quite simple, straightforward. If you're talking about um, building management systems, probably don't see the absolute need for those. I, I guess what I'm more interested in um, preserving is the ability for people to operate their houses manually without tech. I think tech is great there. And if you do have a building management system, great. But if it fails, you still got to be able to um, operate your building comfortably. So building in that redundancy. The, the question was, comes from a lot of architectural CPDs when it's talking about homes, starts talking about things like passive house and locking down the building and having a really low energy way to filter through the air, deal with mold and dealing with a, a house that is, I guess, locked down and low filtration. That, that That's a lot of uh, somewhere where the green tech is going um, and adding new technology and you know increasing the efficiency of split system air conditioners or going geothermal heating, um, which is less of an issue up north where you're trying to, as Shanine said, trying to capture the breeze. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I think all those technologies are really important and the development of them are really important. But when, you, when you're talking about passive house, I know that the discussions about that are quite divided and um, from our perspective, they're really not applicable to this, this climate zone up here. You know, we'd much rather open everything up but uh, I do understand the benefits in certain climate regions for that approach too, and also understanding that uh, if power does fail, it that you can still open the windows. There's also just as much focus on the passive aspects of the building fabric, you know, insulating the walls, the roof, to ensure you know low energy use. Uh, and I think that's common whether you've got a free-running house or a, a passive house approach. There's another aspect of green tech that we haven't really talked about, and that's the use of computer modeling, computer programs in trying to assess, you know, even coming down to catching prevailing breezes, where you want to put the trees. And then it comes into the an assessment of the materials you're using, in, let's say an embodied energy assessment or life cycle assessment. Is there any of that green tech that you utilize in your design or the documentation or is it mostly, I guess, rules of thumb and you know good architectural intuition? And is there anything in that sphere of data analysis that you think you will be using in the next few years? Yes, to all that, yes, yes, all of the above. Um, absolutely. Look, uh, with the design software we use, we're constantly modelling um, shadows or doing analysis of shadows because up here, shade is um, one of the critical parts of of passive design, keeping the solar gain down. So we're doing that in-house, but uh, we also uh, will outsource energy modelling and use that to, to fine-tune our building fabric, our glazing, where, where there is glazing, what size it is. Yes, that, that is a, a sustainable technology which is very useful for, um, for building design and fine-tuning it for, for climate, yes. Well, I think that was all my questions. I want to thank you both, Shanine and Belinda, for your time and your expert insight. Uh, is there anything, any last thoughts you wanted to leave this on? Yeah, I, I mean, Shanine touched on it earlier. Where, where we are, we, 
we work across a very large uh, backyard, as it were, a very large territory. We do a lot of work in remote communities. And for us, when we're considering sustainability, I think philosophically there's a real need to reflect on the need for the for sustainability to understand the big picture framework. We often refer to the pillars of sustainability, which commence with environmental, social and economic sustainability. And in recent years, these pillars have expanded to include a fourth, which is cultural sustainability. And it may not be clear how this applies to residential sustainability. So where we are here in Cairns, oh, look, anywhere in Australia, we're a place with two histories. And this is something that many people don't consider when they're framing discussions about sustainability. And so in Cairns, the settlement history is only about 145 years old. So the First Nations history of this place extends for for millennia and the traditional custodians here maintain continuous connection to country and culture. So again, you might ask, how is this relevant to designing sustainable houses? For us, it is relevant because when we consider sustainability, we can learn much from the ways of knowing, being and doing of First Nations peoples. This is because environmental and social sustainability is embedded in First Nations philosophy and values. And if you consider that with the Western notion of owning land in contrast to First Nations idea of belonging to land and the difference between asserting your rights versus recognising your obligations in relation to environment community and future generations. So this might sound a bit like a sidetrack conversation, a bit abstract, but for us it's not only respectful recognition, but it's also fundamental to explaining why we should practice sustainability and be good custodians of the places in the country that we occupy. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks again to our guests, Shanine Fanton and Belinda Orwood. We love hearing from you up in Cairns, and we look forward to hearing more about the sustainable and ethical work you undertake in the future. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produced podcasts by architecture fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. If you'd like to hear from some more amazing architects, you can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Callum Senyov, Myron Montero, Genevieve Vu, Sam McQueenie, Rohanna Fullerton and Bridie O'Toole. This interview was edited by Pete Carter at Pillowfort Audio Productions, written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result.
The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.